You're starving after a long day of nephrology clinic, and you've ambitiously embarked on a delicious pasta dinner. You have leftover sauce, but the minutes crawl by as you wait for the pasta to boil. You add a dash of salt and wait until it's finely cooked to perfection. As you eagerly pour it into your handy colander, it strikes you. This is a grossly simplified version of one of the kidney's main tasks. The kidneys are filled with millions of very precisely organized nephrons, which each contain filters called glomeruli. The pasta water with the salt, also known as electrolytes, passes through the holes easily, getting filtered and eventually excreted into the sink as urine is from the kidneys. The pasta, on the other hand, is too large to pass and remains faithfully in the colander, just as major plasma proteins like albumin and globulins do. When pasta starts to leak through and ends up in the sink, or when the pasta water cannot be filtered appropriately, we run into obstacles on our journey to make a delicious pasta dinner. When this happens with the kidneys, we may start to develop chronic kidney disease. Today, our patient has chronic kidney disease and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled, When the Filters Start to Falter, An Approach to CKD Management. All right, time for a minute physiology. The kidneys coordinate with other organ systems to maintain many of our bodily functions. Think of these mighty organs as the ultimate conductors. They regulate water and electrolyte balance, blood pressure, extracellular fluid volume, metabolic waste excretion, acid-base balance, red blood cell production, and mineral metabolism. As CKD develops, the body runs into difficulties regulating these processes. The kidneys maintain extracellular fluid volume by controlling water and electrolyte, mostly sodium, balance. They also produce renin, which participates in the RAS system and ultimately manipulates vascular smooth muscle to affect systemic blood pressure. In addition, the kidneys excrete end products of the body's metabolic processes, including urea, uric acid, and urobilin, at the same rate they're produced. And they play a role in excreting foreign substances like medications in partnership with the liver. Acid-base balance is controlled by the kidneys as well. They manage the daily acid load by reabsorbing bicarbonate and secreting protons to keep the body's pH within a closely limited range. As CKD progresses, the prevalence of metabolic acidosis increases. Chronic metabolic acidosis is associated with systemic inflammation, bone resorption, increased muscle catabolism, impaired myocardial contractility, and CKD progression, amongst others. The kidneys also play a major role in red blood cell production. Erythropoietin, or EPO, is the hormone responsible for stimulating the bone marrow to produce red blood cells. EPO secretion is stimulated by decreased partial pressure of oxygen around the renal interstitial cells that produce it. As CKD becomes progressively more advanced, decreasing nephron mass is associated with decreased EPO production. This contributes to the anemia of chronic disease seen in CKD patients. Calcium and phosphorus concentrations in the blood are also closely regulated by the renal system. Most of the body's calcium and phosphate are in the bone. The kidneys produce 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, or calcitriol. 
Calcitriol promotes the absorption of calcium and phosphate from the GI tract, stimulates bone resorption, inhibits urinary calcium and phosphate excretion, and inhibits pH secretion by the parathyroid glands. In CKD, there is decreased renal calcitriol production, leading to hyperphosphatemia, hyperparathyroidism, vitamin D deficiency, and hypocalcemia through multiple interrelated pathways. Together, these lead to bone metabolism disorders with increased risk of fracture and bone pain, as well as vascular calcification and cardiovascular disease. All right, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. CKD is fundamentally a biochemical diagnosis. Diagnosing CKD requires a minimum of three months of evidence of kidney damage with blood or protein in the urine or decreased kidney function, defined as an estimated glomerular filtration rate or EGFR of less than 60 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared. At least three months are necessary to differentiate CKD from acute kidney injury. The severity of CKD is then staged using categories based on the EGFR and the urine albumin to creatinine ratio. The G categories are based on EGFR, with G1 representing individuals with an EGFR of greater than 90, and G2, G3, G4, and G5 representing increasing severity of disease. The A categories are based on albuminuria, are A1 with a urine ACR less than 3, A2, and A3 with associated increasing levels of albuminuria. So, for example, someone with an EGFR of 27 and a urine ACR of 55 is described as having category G4A3 disease. Albuminuria is very prognostic in CKD and is an important risk factor for the development of end-stage kidney disease. Just like an acute kidney injury, CKD can be caused by processes that affect the glomeruli, tubules, vasculature, or interstitium. The most common causes of CKD are diabetic kidney disease and hypertensive nephrosclerosis. Risk factors for CKD include diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome, smoking history, family history of kidney disease, structural kidney disease, and systemic conditions with potential renal involvement, such as lupus, amongst others. The cause of CKD can be definitively identified via biopsy, which can be helpful for prognostication in patients with an unclear etiology. However, in patients with small, hyperechoic kidneys on imaging, a biopsy is unlikely to identify a reversible cause, and these patients are at higher risk of complications related to the procedure. Once you have established the diagnosis of CKD with a suspected or biopsy-proven underlying cause, you should then screen for symptoms related to chronic kidney disease. Patients with CKD are often asymptomatic until they develop advanced stage disease, usually G4 or G5. In these patients, it's important to elucidate whether the patient is experiencing any symptoms in advanced CKD or uremia, which frustratingly can be quite nonspecific. You should ask about symptoms of fatigue, decreased appetite, lethargy, difficulty concentrating, nausea, vomiting, pruritus, metallic taste, and muscle cramps. Chest pain in these patients may also be related to uremic pericarditis in very advanced CKD. These patients are also prone to bleeding due to uremic platelet dysfunction and should be asked about bleeding symptoms, including easy bruising, as well as mucosal, gastrointestinal, or urinary tract bleeding. 
You should inquire about changes to voiding in all patients, including any voiding difficulties, nocturia, polyuria, oliguria, hematuria, or very frothy urine, which can be suggestive of proteinuria. Changes in weight are also important. Both weight loss with cachexia or weight gain secondary to fluid retention. Presyncope, palpitation, syncope, dyspnea, orthopnea, and PND are also important to ask about in the context of their volume status and their medications. Make sure to do a thorough review of all medications during each encounter, and remember to adjust doses and reassess medications based on the GFR, particularly with diabetes medications and antibiotics. Certain medications, such as NSAIDs, should be avoided in CKD. On physical exam, always start with the vitals. In patients in whom you suspect volume depletion, orthostatic vitals can be a helpful index. On general inspection, you can check for conjunctival pallor, suggestive of anemia. You should also assess mental status during every encounter, looking for signs of confusion or inattention. You should then assess the volume status to determine whether they are euvolemic, hypovolemic, or hypervolemic. You'll need to assess the JVP, mucous membranes, peripheral edema, and blood pressure, as well as auscultate for any crackles or diminished lung sounds suggestive of pleural effusions. When looking for peripheral edema, it is important to keep tracking up from the most peripheral aspect and to check for sacral or truncal edema, especially if the edema extends past the knees. On cardiac auscultation, you'll want to listen for any evidence of a pericardial friction rub, which you might hear with uremic pericarditis. Examining for any evidence of asterixis or myoclonus is also important in the setting of uremia. Let's talk about our workup. Kidney imaging is important in the setting of CKD usually with a kidney ultrasound at the time of diagnosis. Findings suggestive of CKD on ultrasound include decreased kidney size, decreased cortical thickness, and increased cortical echogenicity. The presence of enlarged kidneys with multiple cysts is suggestive of polycystic kidney disease, which is the most common genetic cause of CKD. It is also always important to rule out obstruction by examining for hydronephrosis. Now, monitoring for CKD progression should be done at least annually, with assessment of the GFR and albuminuria, usually with the urine ACR. On average, the eGFR declines by 1 mL per minute per 1.73 m2 per year, and decline by greater than or equal to 5 mL per minute per 1.73 m2 per year is suggestive of rapid progression. You will also want to order a CBC to check for anemia. Ferritin, which is a marker of iron storage, and transferrin saturation, which is an index of iron availability to support erythropoiesis. Assessing electrolytes will be important as well, particularly the potassium to watch out for hyperkalemia and the bicarbonate to look for metabolic acidosis. In patients with G3A to G5 disease, PTH, calcium, and phosphorus levels should also be serially assessed. Checking for vitamin D deficiency is also important in this population as well. With the large burden of cardiovascular morbidity and mortality in the CKD population, lipid and glycemic control should also be assessed in patients with a lipid profile and an HbA1c. All right, on to our management. Management of CKD is based on six key pillars, risk factor modification, blood pressure and volume status management, anemia management, acid-base balance maintenance, bone and mineral metabolism, 
and avoiding nephrotoxins and dosing of medications according to renal function. We will discuss the tenets of each of these today. A cornerstone of CKD management involves encouraging lifestyle interventions that are key in slowing disease progression and protecting against cardiovascular disease. Smoking cessation should also be encouraged. In addition, physical activity at least five times per week in 30-minute increments is recommended, along with aiming to achieve a healthy weight, targeting a BMI of about 20 to 25. With respect to diet, a limit of less than 2 grams of salt per day is suggested. As patients develop more advanced CKD, dietary phosphate and potassium restriction are also introduced. Patients with CKD also have mild defects in T-cell function and are therefore at increased risk of bacterial and viral infections. Providers should be routinely encouraging immunizations, including the annual influenza vaccine, Pneumovax 23 in patients with an EGFR less than 30, hepatitis B immunization, and screening for hepatitis C. Additionally, dyslipidemia should be treated with statin therapy in all CKD patients age 50 years or older for cardiovascular risk management. Blood pressure management is another pillar of CKD treatment, with a recommended systolic blood pressure target between 120 to 140, depending on the resource and the patient's comorbidities. ACE inhibitors and ARBs are the preferred antihypertensive agents in this population and should be uptitrated to the highest tolerable dose. It is important to balance blood pressure control with the side effects of intensive regimens, which can include orthostasis, hyperkalemia, and acute worsening of kidney function on initiation. These agents need to be used with caution in patients who run into issues with these side effects. Hyperkalemia in the setting of ACE inhibitors or ARB use can sometimes be mitigated with dietary potassium restriction and potassium binders. SGLT2 inhibitors have also been demonstrated to be renal protective in the setting of proteinuric CKD and should also be initiated in patients who are on a maximally tolerated dose of an ACE inhibitor or ARB and have an EGFR greater than 25. As with ACE inhibitors and ARBs, patients starting on SGLT2 inhibitors should have their blood pressure and volume status closely monitored. In patients who are hypervolemic, diuretics are also prescribed, including loop diuretics such as Lasix and thiazide diuretics such as chlorthalidone, endapamide, and hydrochlorothiazide. There are also some convenient formulations of combined ACE inhibitor and thiazide formulations, which can help mitigate pill burden in these patients. For anemia management, patients who are iron deficient should be treated with oral or parenteral iron supplementation, targeting specific thresholds for ferritin and a transferrin saturation. In CKD patients who have a hemoglobin less than 100, despite being iron replete, an EPO-stimulating agent such as darbopoietin may be considered to target a hemoglobin of 100 to 120. Chronic metabolic acidosis should be treated with oral sodium bicarbonate to target a normal bicarbonate level between 23 and 29 milliequivalents per liter typically. This treatment may slow CKD progression and protect bone and muscle health. With the pill burden associated with sodium bicarbonate tabs, some patients much prefer to drink a glass of water with a spoon of baking soda for acidosis management. Hyperphosphatemia in the setting of CKD-related mineral bone disease should initially be managed with decreasing dietary phosphate intake. Some foods patients should avoid include foods with phosphate additives like soft drinks, processed cheese and processed meats, as well as hard cheeses, nuts, and egg yolks. However, in patients with persistent hyperphosphatemia despite dietary interventions, usually in the realm of serum phosphate greater than 1.8, a phosphate binder can be introduced with patients' meals to prevent absorption from foods. 
Calcium carbonate can be given with meals for binding purposes as it is effective, inexpensive, and a good place to start. It is key that it be given at the same time as meals to effectively bind phosphate. Non-calcium options include sevolamer and lanthanum. These options are far more expensive and not covered by provincial drug plans in most cases and are associated with GI symptoms like dyspepsia and diarrhea. In patients with secondary hyperparathyroidism, modifiable factors including vitamin D deficiency and hyperphosphatemia should be corrected with medical management whenever possible. If the PTH remains elevated despite phosphate binders and correcting vitamin D deficiency, the active form of vitamin D, calcitriol can be started. If initiated, there should be close monitoring for hyperphosphatemia and hypercalcemia. The PTH target is within two to nine times the upper limit of normal of the assay being used to measure PTH. In severe hyperparathyroidism, refractory to medical therapy, often accompanied by hypercalcemia and hyperphosphatemia, also termed tertiary hyperparathyroidism, patients should be referred for consideration of parathyroidectomy. Finally, don't forget in each encounter to look at the trajectory of the patient's renal function overall. When there is progressive disease, it is important to preemptively have discussions and provide personalized education to patients and their caregivers about options for transplantation, dialysis, or conservative care. If the conservative care modality is selected, then patient care will be centered more on symptom management and quality of life rather than dialysis transplant preparation. Ideally, patients will be healthy enough and have a willing kidney donor to undergo preemptive kidney transplant before they need to start dialysis. If patients decide to proceed with dialysis, they will need to be assessed for vascular access creation, with options including a fistula, arteriovenous graft, or a tunneled line for conventional dialysis, and peritoneal dialysis catheter insertion for peritoneal dialysis. The kidney failure risk equation, or KFRE, is a widely used tool that uses age, gender, EGFR, and urine ACR to estimate patients' risk of progression to end-stage kidney disease at two and five years. Various cutoffs using this tool have been proposed and are being evaluated to help guide management and prognosticate in chronic kidney disease. All right, time for a medicine minute. EmpaKidney is a recently published randomized control trial that looks at the use of the SGLT2 inhibitor empagliflozin in diabetic and non-diabetic CKD across a broad range of EGFRs and included a subset of patients with non-proteinuric CKD. This highly anticipated clinical trial demonstrated another exciting win for the use of flozins in CKD management. It showed that treatment with empagliflozin led to lower risk of kidney disease progression and a lower risk of death from cardiovascular causes among CKD patients with and without diabetes, down to an EGFR of 20. These benefits were greater in patients with moderate proteinuria, and whether there is a role for its use in non-diabetic, non-proteinuric CKD remains to be seen. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled, When the Filters Start to Falter, an Approach to CKD Management. This episode was written by Dr. Susan Thanabalasingham, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Christine White, nephrologist, and Dr. Christopher Smith, general internist. This episode was recorded by Alison Lai, sound editing by Margaret Sutt. The Internet Work series was created by Alison Lai and is executively produced by Alison Lai, Leah Karianopoulos, and Zara Morali. Theme song by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. As always, we have an associated infographic on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thank you for listening and we hope to see you again soon.